Good morning. Uh, thank you for having me today. Uh, Pastor Ted asked that uh, I come this week and uh, present a message, but uh, as Kyle had said, we were here last November, and uh, I assume a number of you were able to uh, see the RV that we have. It's an RV equipped with an ultrasound machine, and so we go out into the community and we park in conspicuous locations so that women who are pregnant and may need some help, some counseling, uh, often just some love, that we're there to, to help, and it's all based on free will donations. Uh, you guys were very generous last year, and so uh, that ministry continues to, to bless people, but also uh, bless me, my wife Carolyn, who's here, and all of us in the, in the ministry. So um, this time of the season is election season, and if you're like me, you have had opportunity to engage. Uh, sometimes probably pleasant engagement, and other times maybe not so pleasant. But what's, what's so fascinating about our republic, our democracy here, is that we get this opportunity every so often to uh, engage in an election, to vote people um, into office. And so if we uh, flip to the next slide here, the fact is we have um, coming up a week from Tuesday... On the 8th of November, we have an opportunity to go to the polls and vote. And it is usually, at least for my own situation, a time where you're looking at uh, candidates, you're looking at what the issues are, uh, you know, ballot initiatives, and these sorts of things. And as Christians, what we ought to do, what we should do, is look at everything, not just during election season, but everything through the lens of Jesus. So if he were here... What would he do? And that's always uh, to be the filter by which we analyze anything um, in our life. And, uh, boy, talk about a topsy-turvy election cycle. Um, I saw a meme on on Facebook where it was basically the the worst game of uh, would you rather uh, that you could play. (laughs) But nevertheless, these, at least at the presidential level, these are the two candidates that our country has put forward. And I'm 48, so I've participated in a number of presidential cycles, but even folks who are much older than me have said they've never seen anything quite like it. And even just this bombshell that came just last Friday totally uh, might upend where things were trending. And so, but we as Christians, again, need to not get too excited about it, but the fact is, is that we're sitting here having a certain set of feelings about the election. So the questions are, what, how do we feel about it? But the other question is, how should we be feeling about it? And that's really what I want to explore a, a bit today, is to, to really look into God's Word, because we have this precious Word here that tells us how we ought to think. And, and what we ought to do. Because God in heaven, we were made in his image and likeness, and it is his will and desire that we be imitators of him, that we walk as Jesus walked, and that we do as Jesus did, that we would walk in his steps. And you've been on the road of being a Christian for a while, it is a process. You don't get everything day one. And as you move through, you also just see your own life, and you realize I still, God still has quite a bit of work to do in me. 
during this cycle as well, you hear the, the debates, you hear the, the town hall meetings, you, you hear the stump speeches, you uh, read the newspaper, and there's all these promises that go out from the candidate's lips. I'm going to do this for this group of people, and I'll do this for this, and it's just this blank checkbook and unlimited power. All these promises come out. And if you look at what a candidate may have promised when they were uh, wanting to be elected, and then you uh, go out uh, three or four years later and then look back and see how many promises actually were fulfilled, the, the track record is often very poor. But before we go any further, we need to remind ourselves that this book has a lot of promises for God's people. In fact, by, by many counts, it's somewhere between 3,000 and 3,500 promises that flow from the pages of this Bible to you and to me. And what we know, 2 Corinthians 1, Paul says that all of the promises of God, all of the promises of God are yes and amen in Jesus. Amen. And thanks be to God for that because he is not a God that throws words around and throws thoughts and promises around. God cannot lie. And so when he makes declarative statements about who he is and what he's going to do, those are promises that we can take to the bank. We can take in prayer and with God in prayer claim these promises. Now, what he doesn't tell us is when these promises that he makes are going to be fulfilled, whether it's in our life or the lives of others or certainly in the lives of of the broader church. But we know that if we seek the Lord and seek his face, he is faithful. He is merciful. He is just, as we just got done singing about. And so as we uh, move to the next slide here, Uh, What I wanted to do is just take a moment. This is the numbers part of the sermon because I enjoy numbers. So it's important to remember where we've come from. And so this country was founded on Judeo-Christian principles. And when we look at the uh, both the author as well as the signers of the Declaration of Independence, when we look at the authors and signers of the Constitution, we see a framework and we see men who participated in this whose God was the Lord. And so when we look at, for example, the Constitution itself, we see that Article 1 talks about the uh, legislative branch, Article 2 talks about the executive branch, and Article 3 talks about the judicial branch. Now, it's very fascinating that when you think about the order, and the order was not random, when you're arguing a point, say, in a paper that you might write, you're going to put your best argument first. So when you look at Article 1, Section 1, of the Constitution, it says this. It says, all legislative powers herein granted, herein granted in the Constitution, shall be vested in a Congress of the United States, consisting of both a Senate and a House of Representatives. So that word all is what it meant, which is all legislative power. The most important thing you could know about any group or organization is who gets to make the laws. And our Constitution is very clear. The very first sentence after the preamble says that Congress gets to make the laws. But not so as we look around our country today. We have the president, the current and former presidents, doing what's called executive orders. We have uh, departments within the executive branch declaring law and policy. And then we also have a Supreme Court 
and other federal courts legislating from the bench. So we have the two other elements of our government making law. And so really what we've had is Article 1, by the way, has 2,300 words to it. It's like, here's the PowerPoint for today. Here's Article 1. Okay, it's like this much text, the legislative branch. The executive branch has about 1,000 words in it, so less than half. And then our judicial branch has less than 400 words. But what do we see today? We've basically seen that flip to where the Supreme Court, that's why it's so critical and we worry, we fear, oh, what about the Supreme Court? Well, it was never meant to be that important. It was never meant to be that important, but that's exactly what's happened. We've actually flipped over the last couple hundred years as a country through our legislators and through the votes of the people, we've flipped it over. So now, in effect, the courts seem to have the most power because the buck stops with them. We have presidents who make law because they just feel like it, and then we have Congress that gets often kicked to the side, and it wasn't meant to be this way. Now, what I've heard from many people is that there is such a discouragement about the choices that they have that you know what, forget it, I'm just going to stay home. I've heard that. You've probably heard that. Or maybe, no show of hands, but maybe you're thinking that. Well, I would encourage you to, to go out and vote because here's why. If we, look at the, just the, um, if we look at the federal government right now, there are 34 senators, if we look nationwide, there are 34 of the 100 senators that are up for re-election this November 8th. 34. We have all five, 435 in the House of Representatives that every two years they get reelected. In addition to that, we have 12 governors of states that are up for re-election. We have about 6,000 state representatives who are up for election. And now we come to the local level. Do you know in the local level across this nation, there's about a half a million offices that are being voted on this November 8th. So, and in addition, in California, and this is the most since I've been voting that I remember seeing, there are 17 ballot initiatives in the state of California. And so again, as we look at all of these candidates, as we look at these ballot initiatives, as we look at our local issues and different uh, measures, it is through the eyes of Jesus that we ought to approach everything, including when we elect people and when we decide on law that will be affecting us. Our Constitution was based on this concept of the consent of the governed. That's you and me. We are governed by people. And so we ought to look through the eyes of Jesus with, with everything. And so if we go to the next slide. I think it's helpful as we step back and there's so much noise and shouting and by the way, the total number of Facebook arguments that have actually changed somebody's mind is zero. <laughs> Not very effective, but we all kind of engage in it, don't we? But it's important to step back and really gain the perspective that, that God wants us to have. And he is not silent on this. His word is filled with, and I have some uh, you know, guiding principles. This is obviously a partial list, but I think these verses, as I was praying and preparing, is, these are verses that ought to guide our thoughts. They ought to guide our conversation, and they definitely ought to guide our decision-making when we come into this election cycle. You don't have to turn there, but in 2 Timothy 1, it says this. It says that God has not given us a spirit of fear, 
but he has given us a spirit of power, of love, and of a sound mind. And so we as Christians have the Holy Spirit. And that by virtue of that, we have a spirit which has power. It has love, and it is of a sound mind. And so again, the sound mind part is critical when we're thinking about who we ought to elect and what other legislation we think is worthy to as the consent of the governed that we would want to be governed by. But how often do we hear in this rhetoric, and again, we engage in it, we've at times said it, you know, we start fearing about the unknown. What's going to happen to our country if such and such person gets in? Well, we have to elect so-and-so because if we don't, then the Supreme Court will be thus and such. Or we fear immigration and borders, or we fear the economy, or we worry about you know, such and such. But, but what is the spirit that's driving those thoughts? Is it the spirit of God? No, it's not, because it says that we were not given a spirit of fear. So if, if this wellspring within us begins to think, oh, I, I'm, I'm getting fearful, I'm getting anxious, this is not God's will for us, because we ought to beat and march to a different drum because he has given us all things, as it says in Peter. He's given us all things that pertain to life and godliness. He has left nothing out that we need in terms of access, gifts, talents, and abilities. What's beautiful, too, is that he places us in a body, the body of Christ, us here. He places us in the body with different gifts, talents, and abilities. Why? How? As it pleases him. Because he knows our frame. He knows us better than we do. He loves us more than we love ourselves or other people may love us. And so as we submit to him and know that he is sovereign, what a comfort that that ought to bring us at this uh, time. If you flip over to uh, Proverbs 29, or you can just uh, make the note if you uh, would like to. Proverbs 29 in verse 25 says this, sort of a companion thought here. It says, the fear of man brings a snare. I think at all times, different times, we have feared, we've had these thoughts of fear toward, toward men or toward different people. But the Lord says that brings a snare. But whoever trusts in the Lord shall be safe. So as we deepen our trust in our commitment and fellowship with the Lord, this, this place of safety that we all desire. I mean, wh- why is it that we would fear certain things that may happen in society or with an election? Because we, we have a concern about ourselves and about our family, our posterity. We want them to, to live in a, in a land that's, that's free, that has liberties. And here's the other thing. When we talk about the, the Constitution, two of the key elements in, in Article 5, it talks about that no person ought to be deprived of life, liberty, or property without the due process of law. And that same phrase is repeated again in the 14th Amendment, which was right just following the Civil War. So these elements of life, liberty, and property are, are things that the, the Constitution uh, authors and framers and those who participate in the amendment process held extremely high. And we'll, we'll get to that uh, a, l- a little bit more. But I also uh, just want to make a reference to Philippians 4, verses 6 and 7, which also is, again, we think about the promises of God. And here's what Philippians 4, 6 and 7 says. It says, be anxious for nothing. Or we could say worried. 
I think we use the word worried more than anxious these days. Be anxious for nothing. But in everything, in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So why does Paul tell us to not be anxious? Because our tendency is to be anxious. <laughs> and it's quite easy to get anxious. It's just You might hear a news report or you might have somebody tell you something and all of a sudden there's, there's anxiety within us. But it, it's not that it's sinful to have anxiety, but rather when that comes that we stop and that we pray. And that this peace, which surpasses all understanding, is a, is a promise. It's one of the many, many promises of God that he will give us that peace if we pray. And I think a key element of that verse is also with thanksgiving. It's giving thanks during those times when you may not even feel like giving thanks because you may be in a trial, but God desires that through that we also give thanks and that he will promise this wonderful and beautiful uh, peace for us. If you go to John 14 for a moment, John 14, this is, these are the words of Jesus. Another um, just really fabulous promise that Jesus gives us. He says in, in John 14 and in verse 27, Peace I leave with you. That's a promise that we can Grab hold of. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. And see, there's, there's no qualifiers on this statement. It's that I'm going to give you my peace because I, I don't want you to be troubled or afraid because in this life, we come to those times when we, what? We're troubled, and we're afraid, and we're, we're fearful, and we're, we're anxious. And Jesus says, I, I don't want you to feel that way. I, I'm giving you my peace because I know that you need it. I am the author of peace. It says in another place that he is our peace. So if we have Jesus, we have peace. But we need more of him, don't we? We need more and more, and that's why we come to church, and that's why we have fellowship, and that's why we read and we pray, because we want more Jesus. What we have isn't enough. Is it, is it possible to have too much Jesus? Wow, that was really quiet. Is it possible to have too much Jesus? No, it is not. He wants us to just be bathed in him, because it, it, there's another place that says to, that we ought to put on Christ. Because we know that all of the ills we see, all of the problems in society, all of the problems in our own life, our own relationships, all of them are solved in Jesus. All of them. And then, just to flip over to 1 Peter 2, again, it's a, it's a relevant time to remember this, this verse at this, uh, during this, uh, this election season. We see here in 1 Peter 2, and in verse 17, it says, it says, to honor, 
all people. Love the brotherhood. Fear God and honor the king. And in our modern day vernacular, we don't have kings in this country, but we have officials, we have presidents, we have other people. So certainly by extension that would, would apply. But it, it says that we ought to honor all people, honor the king. And what we've seen, not only from the two presidential candidates, but in many other discussions, pundits, bloggers, even out of our own mouths, we've seen a lot of dishonor. We've seen a lot of accusation. We've seen a lot of finger-pointing. We've seen ire. We've seen vitriol. We've seen just hate coming out from, again, each other and, and even at times our, our own, you know, Facebook. Let's, let's go to Facebook and argue our point. But, but God says that this, this should not be so. And I'm not saying that we can't stand up when we see an injustice and that, that we're speaking out against the injustice. But as far as honoring people, that ought to be a compass that we use to guide all of our interactions, that we honor all people because all people are made in the image and likeness of God. All people are image bearers of God. That doesn't mean that we agree with them, but there's, there's a respect there that as we think about this, this election cycle, and not just now, but, but at all times, that we remember the words of, of Peter. So as we go to the next slide, we need to ask a very important question. This, this is the question right now. What kind of leader does our Father desire? What kind of leader does our Father desire? Now, again, what's so beautiful is that God does not leave us ignorant. He, he gives us so many uh, passages, so many verses that they, what they really do is they reveal God's heart on everything. That because we want to be his imitators and because we want to take on the, the Spirit, we want to be uh, living epistles for him wherever we go, that we want to listen to what, what God has already said in his word about wh- what are the types of leaders. So there's actually an example in the, in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. There's other places we could go to, but these are the two that we're going to go to today. And the first one is found in, uh, in Exodus. Uh, it's in uh, Exodus 18 and in, in verse 21. This is when Moses was overburdened by the amount of people coming to him to receive uh, uh, judgment and, and evaluation on different affairs that he was managing. And so his, his father-in-law, uh, Jethro, was, was engaging, him and engaging with him, and uh, it was said to Moses that you ought to select from all the people able men, such as fear God, men of truth, hating covetousness, You know what just happened right there? We just narrowed the pool down quite a bit. Okay, so now there's not that many people would be in play here. Now, before I go any further, let me mention that I know we're not electing a pastor-in-chief. We're not electing uh, some you know, spiritual deacon to a certain office. But notice that the, the context here of selecting 
people that had these attributes was to judge affairs that weren't necessarily spiritual. They were affairs dealing with the community of Israel. So that's a very similar context that we find ourselves with our elected officials because they are there to do what? To serve the people. Not, not be served, which is often the case, but they're there to serve and to help manage and administrate the affairs of our, of our society. And so we then fast forward into the New Testament where the, the 12 apostles were together and they said, look, there's all these different affairs within the, the church and we ought not to, to leave the word of God and, and serve tables, serve some of the administrative blocking and tackling of the running of the church. And so at that point, what the apostles said was to the, to the church, to the group, they said, select or seek out from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit, and wisdom. Okay, so our pool was here before, and now we read Acts 6, and the pool is really narrow. How about us? How about me? How about you? Would, would you pass the test? Does this talk about who you are? A sobering thought as we look at our own life. But it's very fair to be using this kind of list to say what type of, and again, not just the presidential level, but we have other state and local officials, that they ought to be people who have integrity, who have a moral compass, and who hate covetousness, and who embrace wisdom, and who have a smallness in their own eyes so that they can properly serve. So one other, um, on the next slide, there's another filter, and again, I could add more, but as we think about the fact that we are in a country that allows the killing of babies in the womb. So at the presidential level, if we listen to the debates and so forth, we can set those two candidates up and there's, there, there's one whose rhetoric is saying they're for life and there's another candidate whose rhetoric says that they are supporting death. There's about a million babies every year that perish in the womb. It's the most dangerous place to be in this country, sadly. About 600,000 people every year die from heart disease and also from cancer, 600,000 each. And we know people who have died from cancer and heart disease. But we also see this other atrocity, the, the greatest injustice of our time occurring. And what is very... Um, Interesting, but also very sad, is that when the 14th Amendment was drafted in 1866 and ultimately passed in 1868, the definition of a person, again, no person shall be deprived of life, liberty, and property without due process of law. There are times when, through due process of law, people can be deprived of life, liberty, and property, but not without due process of law. And certainly, an innocent baby in the womb, and I, and I know this is a sensitive subject because and I, I, just, I had no idea until just a few years ago that, that one in three women in this country will, will get an abortion sometime during their lifetime. 
which means that there are women here. I have talked to many of them, and it is still with them. But praise be to God that we have a Savior in Jesus who is able, he is able, to cleanse, to heal, to forgive, and to restore. But the definition of a person in 1868 included saying that they were a human being. What was so wicked and evil about the 1973 Roe v. Wade and also the companion Doe Doe v. Bolton case is that the Supreme Court arbitrarily and capriciously separated a person from a human being. And when they did that, they were then able to say that this person doesn't exist here because medicine said, and even the American Medical Association at the time came out very strong against abortion because they knew that it was the killing of a human life. And so what does a human being mean? A human being means that you are a member of the human race. And at conception, everything is there to be that member of the human race. And so we often will look at a a, a battle so big. You think David and Goliath. Goliath was so big that the entire army of Israel was scared and said he is not able to be defeated. And so just because we think that we can't win the battle today or next week or this year doesn't mean that the battle isn't worth engaging and fighting to do what we can to save who God appoints to be saved from death. And we do what we can, and we know that it's the Lord ultimately that gives us the love, gives us the power, gives us the resources to to fight that good fight. And I want to just give a quick shout-out to a a brilliant, uh, a friend of mine, Jeremy Wiles, created uh, an 11-minute, very professionally done film. It's called Sing a Little Louder, and it depicts this abortion fight. You can go to singalittlelouder.org, and it will bring you to the page where you can watch this 11-minute uh, film. It's very gripping. I, I, I cried uh, the two times I've seen it. It's just very uh, heart-wrenching, but it depicts in terms of the Holocaust exactly what's still happening in our country. And so let's, let's be mindful of that as we, as we go to the polls. So as we move ahead here, I want to, I just want to remind us that God is sovereign. There's nothing that happens that happens without him allowing it. Now, I am not saying that everything that happens is according to his will. Absolutely not. But there's nothing that happens that happens without our Father in heaven allowing it. And even that reality right there, I could just park here and and talk the rest of the message because God sees the end from the beginning. We know that Jesus is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. All things are known to the Lord. Nothing is, nobody's getting away with anything. Justice is coming and judgment is coming on this earth. All will bow. Every knee will bow before the judgment seat of Christ. But knowing God's sovereignty, we also know that he is the same yesterday, today, and uh, and God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He says, I am the Lord, I change not. The same God that we see in Daniel, 
is the same God that you and I worship today and call dad, Abba, Father. He is our dad. So if we, if we go to Daniel 2, we see what happened here. And this dealt with uh, Nebuchadnezzar, who was the king of Babylon. But it says here in Daniel 2.21, it says, now notice, and he changes the times and the season that he, that is God, he removes kings and raises up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. So here it is. God raises up kings, raises up leaders, and lowers them. So he's seeing everything. And as we seek him, he is so gracious to often reveal things to us that we don't have to be worried or anxious about what's happening because we know that God is on his throne and that he sees everything. And if we look over also to Proverbs 21.1, Proverbs 21, which is kind of a companion verse as well, notice what Proverbs 21.1 says. It says this, the king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. Like the rivers of water, he turns it wherever he wishes. Now, when I, when I read this, this verse, I, I am convicted, and I will confess to you that I don't believe this verse enough to have as part of my regular pattern praying for our leaders. President, governor, congressman, local officials. And again, the king in our vernacular would be a, a, a leader, a ruler. But see, if I believed that that leader, that king's heart is in the hand of the Lord, that says that God at any point in time, like it compares it to the rivers, he can change it however he wants to. Again, the Facebook argument, ineffective. A letter to the editor, a little more effective, but probably not very effective. Praying to our Father in heaven to change the heart of somebody? See, if, if we, if I, I'm preaching to myself, if I really believed this, my prayer life for leaders would be different. And so as I was preparing, as I'm convicted, I'm just sharing that this is God's description of the king's heart and where it is. And he's telling us, I, I have authority here and you can pray to me. And it, is that what God's waiting for? See, does God know our heart? Of course he does. He knows everything about us. He, he knows the future. He, he knows everything. By praying for our leaders, you can't pray for them and criticize them at the same time. You can't do it. If we trust that God knows the hearts of men and women, and if we submit that trust to him and in earnest prayer ask that hearts be changed, is there anything too hard for the Lord? There's nothing too hard for the Lord. This is a work that you and I can engage in can labor with the Lord in prayer on behalf of people who have authority in our lives. Hearts can change. But I, I think what happens is that 
This happens in my life. I look back and I, I look at my own life and often when we see a lack of miracles or a lack of the kind of transformational change that's possible in God, we say, well, because it hasn't happened in my rearview mirror, that's eh, probably not going to happen now. And so then we, again, we, we, we have unbelief, and that unbelief manifests itself in not praying and often going to the other step of now we begin to engage in criticism and judgment and, and finger-pointing, and that's not the heart of God for his people. And Daniel, I'm, we're not going to turn there, but this is a case where Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, his heart was lifted up, and he got a vision that was actually describing what was going to happen to him. Daniel interpreted it, and it was a vision to say, because you've been lifted up, what's going to happen is I am going to lower you, and I am going to make you as one of the beasts of the field. You're going to go out, and you're going to eat grass like the oxen. You're going to have hair like feathers of an eagle on your body. And you're going to have claws like a bird. And you're going to be wandering out with the beasts for a time. Humbling? I'll say. I mean, you you can kind of have a picture of what that might look like. But incredibly humbling for a man who was the king of Babylon. And he talked about his great kingdom and that this is all stuff that he did. You know what happened after that humbling of this man? He came back, and once the, his senses came back to him, do you, know, do you know what he said to our dad? Here's what he said. It's, it's one verse, and again, you, you don't have to go there, but you can make the note. Here's what Nebuchadnezzar said. He said, now I, Nebuchadnezzar, <laughs> this is so cool, I, Nebuchadnezzar, I praise and extol and honor the king of heaven. Woo! I'm so excited I lost my place. (laughs) And his ways, justice. And those who walk in pride, he is able to put down. How cool would it be if one of the candidates said that? (laughs) Possible? Really? Is, Is that possible today? It is. What is going to make that happen? Well, that's a great place to start. You know what? I don't have uh, uh, either candidate's uh, cell phone number. So I personally have no way to talk to them. But I, I do know who has a hotline to their heart. And that is this God in heaven who took Nebuchadnezzar, a puffed up man over the kingdom of Babylon. And now at the end of it, he is praising and extolling our dad. Awesome God. Cool. Same yesterday, today, and forever. He doesn't change. Same God, same opportunity. So would that we spend, would that I spend my time dedicated to praying more than engaging in in criticism and finger-pointing. All right, final slide. So where is our focus? Where ought our focus to be during this election cycle and beyond. Colossians 3, verse 2, says that we ought to set our mind on things above, not on the things of this earth. 
And, and what happens, particularly during the election cycle, it's such a poignant sort of inflection that we begin to look at the things of the earth. We begin to look horizontally, and we get really frustrated and discouraged, right? But this verse reminds us that we ought to set our mind on things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. And you can make the note as well in in, uh, Hebrews 11, this beautiful faith chapter, it talks about those who died not having received the promises, but, but saw them afar off and knew that the city, the homeland that they were seeking was a city whose builder and maker is God. And it also, this is uh, verses 11 to 13, it also talks about that they confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on this earth. And I don't know about you, but I'm feeling more and more weird (laughs) about being here on this earth because the things that my Father, the things that my Savior, my Lord, desire and seek get harder and harder to find. But noticing, though, that because our focus is to look up, that we know that God is not willing that any should perish, but that all would come to repentance— In Acts 17, it says, Paul said that in times past, God winked. He overlooked it, but now he commands all men everywhere to repent. So the call for salvation in Jesus goes out to everybody, and we have this wonderful opportunity with this spirit of power and love and of a sound mind to go out and be his hands and feet, to be his agents, as it says in 2 Corinthians 5, that we are his ambassadors, that he's through us, imploring people to be reconciled to God because we know what it says in Revelation. We know that the seals are coming. We know that the trumpets are coming. We know that the bowls are coming. We know that judgment and justice is coming. And there is still time that as we have breath, as we have life, taking opportunity to share Jesus with people, share the gospel with them, encouraging them in the things of God. You can make the note in Philippians 4.8 that we ought to dwell on things which are true and right and noble and things that are of a good report, kindness. These are the things that we ought to set our mind on. And then we know that this wonderful declaration that comes in Revelation 11, that Jesus is king. He will be king of kings and lord of lords. And this verse particularly says that the kingdoms of this world, which include this country, the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. Amen. He will reign. And see what right now, the kingdom that he ought to be reigning in is right here. This kingdom, this flesh, this earth, This temple, this tabernacle that's perishing, but the inward man is being renewed, this is where God is dwelling now, and this is the territory that he wants to be king and lord, but also there will be a day when he will be king of kings and lord of lords, and every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. And so the time that we have here now to pray, and to pray often, it talks about praying without ceasing I also just want to encourage as we close that, that you would take a day between now and the election and that you would fast and pray and seek the Lord. 
that his will be done. And that God would not only prick the hearts of these potential leaders, but he would also prick the hearts of his people. If Christians voted according to how Jesus would vote, abortion wouldn't be here. Same-sex marriage wouldn't be here. There'd be a lot of things that would be different in this country.